Amen. Good morning. It's good to be uh, here with you. It's good to be able to join with you online. Thank you, Charlene, for leading us in prayer. This morning's passage is about a building, the most important building in all of human history and the most important building for what's going to happen in the future. It's a building that stood for centuries, is currently not in existence, and will be rebuilt again in the future. Now this sermon is not ultimately about a building, but it's about how this building teaches us about Jesus and about ourselves and about this and other churches. So this morning we're going to be talking about the temple. The temple uh, that stood for centuries in Jerusalem. This most important of all buildings, God's dwelling place on earth. And in order to understand what is coming for the temple or in connection with temple in the future, it's important to understand the temple's story from beginning to end. So I'd like to tell you that story today. I'd like to work through it with you. It's a story in nine parts. And so as we work through this, I have a request. And that is that you take a Bible. If you're in the sanctuary, please take one of the church Bibles or if you have your own. If you're at home, grab a Bible. And we're gonna work through a lot of passages together. But I want to give us kind of the general scope of the temple's story. It's a story, like I said, told in nine parts, and we begin in the book of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 22, if you would turn to Genesis 22, it's not surprising that the temple's story begins in the book of Genesis. Genesis 22, it's page 16 in the church Bibles. In Genesis 22, we are roughly in the year, the time frame of about 2000 BC, about 2000 years before Jesus walks on the earth. Abraham has been told by God to go to a very specific land and there God would bless him and the greatest of the blessings that Abraham would be given is a son, Isaac born to him out of the promise of God and Abraham's faith in response to that promise. In Genesis 22, our story of the temple begins with these words. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. There is absolutely nothing that God could have asked Abraham that made him feel worse than this. This is his son, his son that he loves, the son that he has put his hopes in. This is his beloved son, And God initiates this activity in Abraham's life. And he says, Abraham, take your most beloved relationship, your most prized blessing, and take that son, 
to a particular mountain that I'm going to show you. And when you get there, he says, I will point out the exact mountain that I want this to happen on. Take him to that mountain and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. And Abraham, in a supreme act of submission and obedience, chooses to submit to God's command even though he hates it. And he takes Isaac to a particular region, to a particular mountain that God shows him. On that mountain, as he is ready to obey, to sacrifice Isaac, believing that God had the power to raise Isaac from the dead, if need be. At the last moment, the Lord stops his hand. And he looks and there's a ram that God has provided as a substitute. Abraham is so overjoyed, as you could imagine, so relieved that he names the mountain. The Lord will provide or the Lord will be seen. It's two translations of the same word. Because God is seen on that mountain and Abraham says, this is where the Lord provides. This is where God is seen. And that's what he names the mountain. This is part one of the temple story because this is the mountain and this is the spot where God's temple will ultimately be built. Now before we get to the building of the temple, there is a second part of the temple story which is about the precursor to the temple. For this, I need you to turn over to the next book in the Old Testament, which is the book of Exodus, chapter 25. Exodus 25, it's page 64 in the church Bibles. As you're turning pages, you're turning through about 600 years so that the portion we're going to look at is happening roughly 1,400 years before Christ. The first part of the book of Exodus is the story of how God takes Abraham's descendants and sets them free from captivity in Egypt. He leads them to Mount Sinai. There he appears to them. He gives them the law. And on that mountain, as part of his revelation of who he is to them, he gives them some instructions. Chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Whoever wants to make a sacrificial gift to the Lord is free to do so. The offerings are presented in verses three to seven and then in verse eight. Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. This is an image not of the temple, but of the temple's precursor, which is called the tabernacle. It is a dwelling in which God lived with the Israelites, but it was a mobile tent, meaning you could take this and move it other places. The important thing for us 
is that in this precursor to the temple, God is very explicit with Moses. You don't get to design the tent. You don't get to build what you think looks nice. You must build exactly what I tell you to build. And you must have it follow the pattern that I give to you down to the smallest detail. In fact, what I'd like you to do, you're looking at Exodus 25. I want you just to turn some pages with me. Exodus 25, how the tabernacle's supposed to be built. Exodus 26, also about how the tabernacle's supposed to be built. 27, 28, 29, 30, 31. Very detailed instructions about how to build the tabernacle given directly by God to Moses. We have an interlude in chapters 32, 33, and 34. Then 35, tabernacle. 36, tabernacle. 37, 38, 39, 40. A good portion of the book of Exodus is taken up with building this tent exactly the way God says it must be built. From chapters 25 to 31 is God saying how it had to be built. And then chapters 35 to 40 is going back over the exact same details in sort of mind-numbing kind of way to say it got built exactly the way that God wanted it built. That is the second part in the temple's story. It's precursor, the tabernacle. The site where Abraham offers Isaac as a sacrifice, the precursor of the tabernacle, we are ready for the third part of the temple story, and this is the actual building of the temple. For this, we're going to have to turn through a number of books of the Old Testament. So you're going to be going from right to left through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, until you get to 1st Chronicles. So turn over to 1st Chronicles 21, page 336. By turning through these pages, we have moved forward about 400 years in history. So we are now roughly at the time of about 1,000 years B.C., 1,000 years before Christ. David is king of Israel. And in 1 Chronicles 21, David commits a heinous sin. As a result, God sends a plague on Israel. Thousands die in this plague. But the story tells us that at the center of who God is, is his merciful, compassionate, gracious heart. And when he watches all of this suffering, his heart is moved. And so he stops the angel of death at a very particular spot on a mountain overlooking the city of Jerusalem. It's there that the angel stops. He doesn't go away, but he stops right there. And David sees it. He sees the angel who has been enacting this plague standing and waiting on the top of this mountain. And so David rushes to the mountain, purchases the threshing floor in which the angel is standing, offers a sacrifice of oxen at that point. God sees this sacrifice and this offering, sends literal fire from heaven to eat up the sacrifice. 
and God appears to David on that mountain. Look at the last verse of chapter 21. It actually looks in your Bibles like the first verse of chapter 22. Then David said, the house of the Lord God is to be here and also the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Now David doesn't know it, or at least we don't think he knows it, but this is the exact spot which a thousand years earlier His ancestor Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. This is Mount Moriah. This is the mountain on which Abraham named the Lord will provide, the Lord will be seen. And here a thousand years later, God does provide for David mercy and God is seen on this mountain. And David says, we got to build God a house and it's got to go right here on this spot. Now David too has to submit and obey, not only in appeasing God for the sins that he committed, but also from the fact that although David desperately wants to build God a house, God says you're not allowed to. It's your son Solomon. Solomon has to submit and obey because God gives to David the precise plans for what the temple is supposed to look like. This is the first temple that is built. This is the beginning of its story. We have its site, its precursor, and now the temple itself is being built here in First Chronicles. Solomon is not free to build whatever kind of building he wants to build. He's not free to build the kind of building he thinks might look nice. God divinely inspires David to tell him exactly what the temple is supposed to look like. And Solomon has to submit and build exactly in accordance with the plans that David lays out. In fact, in 1 Chronicles, so detailed is the Lord. We're in chapter 21, chapter 22, detailed specifications about the temple. 23, 24, 25, 26, you get a break in 27, 28, 29. Then you turn over to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 2. The building of the temple, three, four, five, six, and seven. Very detailed instructions and very detailed record of obedience to those instructions. And so around 1000 BC, the temple is first built in Jerusalem. We move to the fourth part of the temple story. And for this, you turn to the end of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 36, the very last chapter in the book, page 373. You're turning through about three to 400 years of human history as you turn those pages. And unfortunately, many of David's biological descendants who are reigning as kings over Israel do not choose the pattern that David set for them of submission and obedience. Instead, in disobedience and rebellion, they actively rebel against God. And God is patient and long-suffering and warns them again and again, you must turn from your wicked ways. You are not allowed to live this way. You cannot behave in this manner. Yet more often than not, they disobey. Until finally, 
in 2 Chronicles 36, God does what he had been threatening to do through all those years. He destroys his own house. King Nebuchadnezzar comes from Babylon at God's command. He tears down the temple that Solomon and David built and burns it to the ground. And the fourth part of the temple story is its destruction in 586 BC. But as is always the case with God, nothing ends on a hopeless note. And so the last lines of 2 Chronicles 36, the middle section is about the destruction of the temple. The last lines of the book are words of hope for the fifth part of the temple story. They're the exact same words that appear in the next book of Ezra. And so you can either look at them at the end of 2 Chronicles 36 or at the beginning of the next book of Ezra and this is what it says, verse two of Ezra one. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, not king of Israel, king of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judea and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. The God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. The fifth event in the temple's history is that it is rebuilt. And the amazing thing about this is it was destroyed because of the disobedience and lack of submission by Israel's kings, it is rebuilt because a non-Jewish king, he's from Persia, he's not Jewish. A non-Jewish king submits and obeys. God tells Cyrus, go build my temple in Jerusalem on the spot where it stood, where David and Solomon built it, on the exact spot where Abraham offered Isaac in sacrifice, and Cyrus submits and obeys. Along with Cyrus, people like Ezra and Nehemiah, a remnant that comes back, rebuilds the temple. And so the book of Ezra, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five, chapter six is about the rebuilding of the temple. Until in chapter six, the temple is finished and rededicated to the Lord in 515 BC. That's the fifth part of the temple's story. For the sixth part of the temple story, we now have to turn all the way to the New Testament. So you're going to go through a lot of books, uh, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, on and on, till we get to Matthew in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 12, page 792. The temple that Cyrus ordered built 
that Ezra and Nehemiah actually built is the same temple that stands on that same mountain in Jerusalem all the way up some 600 years until now we've gotten to the time of Jesus. It was expanded by Herod, but it is the temple that Jesus is dedicated at. It's the temple that he shows up at when he's 12 years old. It's the temple that he spends a lot of time teaching and healing and being engaged in. He also has a lot to say about the temple. The sixth part of the temple story is its connection to Jesus. And when Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew 12, he says in verse 6, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. He's talking about himself. And just as the temple as a, as a building represents Abraham's submission and obedience, Moses' submission and obedience, David and Solomon's submission and obedience, Cyrus's submission and obedience, when Jesus comes on the scene, he so perfectly submits and obeys his father. And that within Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In the temple, it was a building. And God was present in that building. But in Jesus, God is fully and completely present. And so Jesus says, the temple points to me. And something greater than the temple is here. Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. They think he's talking about the building. He says, the building is just to let you know about me and that I have come so that God will dwell among you in the fullest possible way. The sixth part of the temple story is its connection to Jesus. For the seventh part of the temple story, turn over to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Jesus left the what? The temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. The seventh part of the temple's story is the destruction of the second temple. So David and Solomon build the first temple. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Cyrus build the second temple. The seventh part of the temple story is that second temple is destroyed. Jesus speaks these words in probably AD 33. He says, because of the Jewish leadership's absolute disobedience and rebellion, how? They refused to acknowledge that God the Father had sent his only begotten son and by crucifying Jesus, they committed the ultimate, infinitely bad act of rebellion and disobedience. And as a result, Jesus says the same thing is gonna happen now that happened back in the time of 2 Chronicles 36. The temple will be destroyed as a sign 
of disobedience and rebellion. Jesus is predicting it in AD 33 of the future. It happens in AD 70, not long after he says it's going to happen. The Romans come into Jerusalem and in AD 70, they completely destroy the second temple. The picture you have here on the screen is a modern picture. If you went to Jerusalem today, you would see this exact site. This is taken from the Mount of Olives. Do you see the, the golden dome? That is a Muslim building. It's called the Dome of the Rock. To the left of the Dome of the Rock, you can kind of see it. It's another cupola. It's black. That's a mosque, an Al-Aqsa. It's the Al-Aqsa Mosque. All those trees, Dome of the Rock, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But do you see the foundation on which those two buildings are built? That foundation is not Muslim. That foundation is the Temple Mount. That is Jesus walked all along that foundation. Those buildings weren't there. A temple was there. The temple, the second temple, the one that Ezra and Nehemiah and Cyrus built that Herod expanded. The stones that you see, the flat part, that's not any part of the temple. That was the foundation on which the temple was built. And if you go there today, you will see there is literally, just like Jesus said, not a single stone on top of another from the second temple. They found some of those stones. They're down on the ground uh, on the other side, thrown down by the Romans 2,000 years ago. This is the seventh part of the temple story. In AD 70, in response to the ultimate disobedience and rejection of God in crucifying Jesus, the temple is destroyed again. Which brings us to the eighth part of the temple story, which is what about now? For this, I'd like you to turn over to 1 Corinthians 6. So you're in Matthew. You got Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, page 926. The eighth part of the temple story has to do with today, 2021. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are what? Temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The temple is not only connected to Jesus, but through Jesus, it's also connected to us. That when you become a Christian, God sends his spirit to live in you. That just like there was a building standing in Jerusalem that God literally did dwell in, so now God literally, spiritually is dwelling in you and in me as individuals who are believers in Jesus, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are now God's house. Where do you find God? God is present in each and every person who's a believer in Jesus. It's also true, if you'll turn over from 1 Corinthians to Ephesians 2, 
So 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians 2, page 948. We are also told during this time, 2021, verse 19 of Ephesians 2, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become what? A holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is referring not to you and I as individuals, but to us collectively together as Calvary Church. Not the building, but us. And any other gathering of Christians in the name of Jesus as a church. That currently, there is no building standing in Jerusalem. God's temple is found in individuals who are believers in Jesus, and in the church where God dwells in a special way, especially when we gather together. That's the eighth part of the temple story, is its connection to us now. For the ninth and final part of the temple story, We've talked about the past, we've talked about the present. The ninth part of the temple story is about the future. So if you will, will you turn now to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. Revelation 11, it's the last book of the Bible, it's page 997. To make sense of what we experience in Revelation 11, we've had to understand the temple's past and its present, as well as now to talk about its future. In Revelation 11, let me just remind you, the book of Revelation most likely is written about A.D. 90. The second temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. John was there, But this is being written about 20 years after that temple was destroyed. So when we read Revelation 11, verse 1, John says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. This is referring not to the first temple, nor the second temple, but a third temple. And at some point in the future, and I can't put a date up here, but at some point in the future, that spot in Jerusalem where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, where David and Solomon built the temple, where Cyrus and Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt the temple, The prophecy is is that a temple will be rebuilt again a third time in that spot. The book of Ezekiel describes what that temple is supposed to look like. This is a picture that comes from that description in Ezekiel 40 to 48. When does this happen? 
I gave you a timeline when we started the book of Revelation. You're free to look it up. It's on, the, uh, on our website. You just click on it. It's sort of a, a, a PDF that you can look at. The next event is the rapture, followed by a seven-year period called the tribulation. Halfway through the tribulation is the great tribulation. 42 months. That's what this is talking about. So at some point in the future, the temple is rebuilt. And what this is talking about, those 42 months, is talking about halfway through the tribulation. So the ninth part of the temple story is that it will be rebuilt one more time as the third temple. Now we say all of that past, present, and future so that we can understand what God wants us to get from this story of the temple out of Revelation 11. And there's three important things for us. Number one, the temple is the connection between heaven and earth. You're in Revelation 11, just glance over at the last verse of the chapter. Revelation 11, verse 19 Then God's, what? Temple Temple where? In heaven was opened. And within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. That's not what John is measuring in chapter 11, verse 1. He's measuring a temple on earth. In Revelation 11, verse 19, we find out there's a temple in heaven. And this is why it was so important that the temple on earth the tabernacle as well, match the exact specifications that God laid out. It's because the temple in heaven and the temple on earth are connected together. And that when the temple on earth looks like the temple in heaven, then the God who dwells in the temple of heaven will also dwell on earth. This is why Jesus is so important, is because his life is lived in absolute, total submission and obedience. In his life, God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, and he is the connection between heaven and earth, and that in Jesus, heaven has come down to earth. Likewise, for you and for me, as individuals, temples of the Holy Spirit, that God can be present in this world in and through us individually and collectively as a church. The temple is the connection between heaven and earth. Number two, central to this connection is submission and obedience. When Abraham submitted and obeyed, even though it made no sense, even though he didn't like it, God was present on the mountain. When Moses and the children of Israel submitted and built the tabernacle exactly the way God specified, the last lines of Exodus 14 is that God's glory came to dwell in the tabernacle. When David submitted and agreed not to build the temple even though he wanted to, when Solomon agreed and submitted to build the temple exactly the way God told David, when the temple was dedicated, God 
filled it with his glory. When the kings of Israel refused to submit and obey, the temple was destroyed. When Cyrus submitted, when Ezra submitted, the temple was rebuilt. When Jesus submitted and obeyed, God's presence was there in the temple in the most powerful way. But when the Jewish leaders refused to submit and obey, the temple was destroyed again. Likewise, when you and I choose to submit and obey God's will, even if we don't like it, even if we don't understand it, even if we think, well, how come he gets to build this? I wanted to build it. Even if we think, man, these are a lot of specifications that you've got here. When we choose to submit and obey as individuals and collectively as a church, then God is present among us. That's why Jesus prays. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that when you and I choose to submit our will to his will, then heaven is present in us and through us. If you don't submit and obey, that brings destruction. If you choose to submit and obey, then God is present. The third point is the sign of that submission and obedience. And it's in the weird measuring stuff. Why is John measuring the temple on earth? Well, for those of you who are builders, or for those of you who have any sort of interest in handiwork, you may have heard the old adage, measure twice, cut once. Why do we say that? Because anybody who's building something, the measuring is a sign of submission. If you are building a house, even from scratch, you still submit to the architect's plan, and so the builder measures. Have I got this just right? I don't wanna cut this wrong and then have to redo it. So we measure twice. It has to be built in accordance with the specifications. Even if you're just adding a shelf in the garage, it's gotta fit in the space where it's supposed to go. And so you measure carefully as a sign that you are submitting to the constraints of the garage. This is where the shelf has to go. It's gotta look exactly like this or it won't fit. Why is John measuring the temple? And there's actually a lot of temple measurements that take place all throughout the Bible. He is showing submission to God's will. That's why only part of the temple gets measured in the tribulation, the part that is in obedience to God. The outer courts where the Gentiles are disobeying God in the tribulation, that part doesn't get measured. And God is trying to say they are in active rebellion. Why would you measure a shelf that a builder built who just built whatever he felt like building? And so we don't measure that part of the temple in the tribulation. What does this have to do with you and I today? Well, here's our application from the temple story and from Revelation 11. God is present in your life and in my life when we submit and obey. The sign of our submission and obedience is measurement. And so what we're going to do this morning to apply this passage is to take some measurements. And what we're going to measure is how much you and I as an individual 
and how much we as a church measure up to the exact specifications that God has. You may have come here this morning and think, well, I can kind of live my life however I want. You can, but that is the road to destruction. Or you can submit to, this is exactly how I want your life to look, and if you do, God is present. Likewise, as a church, we can say, hey, look, we want to do things this way. We want to do things that way. We can, but that is the road to destruction as a church. If we as a church say, okay, Lord, what are the specifications? We want to measure up to those. God will be present among us. So the question is, what should we use for measurements? Well, the full answer is the whole Bible. We do not have time (laughs) to use the whole Bible to do some measurements. So as I prayed about it, I felt like the Lord gave me just one passage. And so we're going to use this one passage and we're going to take a little bit of time as we get ready for communion to do uh, some measurements. The passage is from Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity." So what I'd like to do, and we're going to take just a few minutes to do this, is we're going to run through the things in this passage, and what I'd like you to do is not think about all of them, but just pick one of them. You're going to pick one of them, and you're going to think about it during some reflection time we're going to have in a few minutes as we prepare our hearts for communion. So these are the things in the passage. First of all, we have compassion. Have our hearts ached for those who are suffering. Second, kindness. How have we helped those who are in need? Humility. Are we saying to God in this season, when things don't go our way, not my will, but yours be done? Gentleness. Are we gentle with others who we disagree with about masks or politics or the holidays or anything else. Patience. I really hate that this one's on the list. Because yesterday, I'm in the post office waiting to do a passport renewal thing. And as only God could arrange it, there's a long line and there's only one person who's working. And the person at the front of the line takes an inordinate amount of time to ask a lot of questions that I felt like answering from the back of the line. Because the person patiently answered them like five times. I was like, yes, this is how it works. There's no mail on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. You can't get this there by Tuesday. And the whole time the Lord kept saying, tomorrow you're gonna have to be measured for patience. (laughs) And so I thought about this, and I thought I wanna pass the test. So I didn't say anything. I still had to confess what was going on in my heart, but. It was helpful that way. Okay, patience. Are we patient? We wait for God to come and do things. Bearing with others. Are we silently putting up with other shortcomings and sins? Or are we demanding perfection from them? Forgiveness. Have we asked for forgiveness from God and from others? Have we freely forgiven others keeping no record of their wrongs? 
And then finally, love and unity. Are we united with others who are different than we are? United with people of different political persuasions, different ethnic backgrounds, loving not only our neighbors, but also our enemies. So here's what I'd like you to do, just pick one. We're not gonna do all of them. So whatever word jumped out at you, whichever description you're like, I'd like to think about that for just a few minutes, pick one. Maybe it's gentleness, maybe it's forgiveness. And just think through, okay, how's that going? Take some measurements this morning. How's it going over the past couple of months? How are you doing in the midst of COVID? How did the holidays go? How are you, how's it going at work right now? Whatever it may be. And we're gonna take just a couple of minutes of silent reflection and you're gonna do some measuring. And maybe it comes out, hey, look, I look pretty close to what the measurements and maybe it's like, you know what? I don't look as much like that. Before we take communion, it's an opportunity in that area to simply confess to the Lord, Lord, I'm sorry. I don't look as much like Jesus as I would like. So take a couple of minutes and reflect on one of these things and take some measurements. and in submission. Lord, our lives, they don't always measure up to what we want them to be, but Lord, they don't always measure up to what you want for us. Lord, you've heard the thoughts of our hearts. Search us and know us, Lord. Remove the deception. God, we want to be people like Jesus, clothed with kindness and compassion and humility and patience. Lord, we want to bear with others. Lord, for the ways in which we have succeeded, may you be glorified. And for the ways in which uh, we fall short, uh, Lord, may you be gracious and forgiving. Thank you that in Jesus, all these sins are forgiven by faith in his name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.